0: Today's scripture comes from the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him.
1: maybe be seated. Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, as we approach your word, and as I attempt to proclaim your word, God, we do not come to it lightly. We do not come to it half-heartedly. We know that it is in these words. It is in your words, Lord, your living and active word that we have life, that we have salvation. We know that your word sustains us, and so God, I ask that you would sustain us this morning, that you would comfort those that need to be comforted, that you would convict those that need to be convicted, and we ask that you would do a, a mighty work as your word is proclaimed. Give us ears to hear, give us hearts to receive it, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do a mighty work we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, church, good morning, and uh, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9. Uh, I missed you all dearly last week, uh, and uh, I was sad I had to be out of town, but we are glad, I'm glad to jump back into Mark. Uh, we have been going through a series in Mark, preaching verse by verse through the book of Mark, and we're now at Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9. Uh, we're going to continue. We'll have Bibles in the back in here. We're going to have Bibles out in the lobby. Always feel free to grab one on your way in. Um, and we, we'd love to have you see God's Word right in front of you as we're going through it. We'll have some scriptures up on the screen as well. But as we get started, show, show of hands here. This is some—you've got to participate a little bit this morning, okay? Uh, Anyone—see, Dad's ready. A- anyone love reading a good book? Like, do we have any good—like, just love reading a good book? Okay. All right. What, what about love watching a good movie? Yeah? Okay. What about you love looking at some good art? Do we have any artists like really enjoy some paintings, sculptures, things like that? Okay. All right. Anyone love listening to good music? Good music? right? No one likes listening to bad music, right? Unless you're a country music fan, then you do, I guess, right? (laughs) Yeah, okay, I know, there's some of you. Yeah, all right, okay, all right, all right, just come back with me, okay? Uh, 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 But but what about this? How about who loves like watching a good uh, sunrise, like enjoys uh, just uh, sitting out seeing a good sunrise? What about a sunset? Do we have sunset? Okay, all right. Yeah, you see, all of us, to some degree or another, we are glory seekers. Okay, we are glory seekers. We long and we seek after glorious, beautiful, majestic things. We want something or someone to take our breath away. We want something or someone to leave us in awe. We want to be captivated by something. We are glory seekers. Glory seekers, we are. Now listen, the word glory, we use a lot in church, and let's make sure we understand what it means. The Bible talks uh, primarily about glory in a couple of different ways. So the first way that the Bible uses that word a lot is talking about giving God glory, okay? And when the word talks about giving God glory, it's talking about giving God honor and praise and, and worship, right? So we say give God glory, give him the honor, give him the praise, give him the worship. But then the second other way the Bible talks about glory is when it talks about the glory of God. And when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's talking about his majesty, his splendor, his abundance. The Hebrew word literally means his weightiness, his weightiness. So so we just sang a song talking about the weight of glory, okay? His weightiness, his significance. It's weightiness in a good sense of the term, okay? I know in our weight-obsessed culture, we can think of weightiness as kind of a bad thing. But no, it's talking about his significance, his weightiness. And so we, when we talk about the glory of God, it is the beautiful weightiness that radiates out from his being, And so at the core of his being, we know that he is holy, right? He is holy, holy, holy. He is pure. He is light. He is love. And anytime we're talking about the core attributes of God, it is correct to say that he is infinitely and perfectly those things, okay? So he is infinitely and perfectly all-knowing. He is infinitely and perfectly supreme and sovereign and unchanging and all-powerful and faithful, right? He is infinitely and perfectly good good and patient and just and kind and merciful, just to name a few. Okay, so those, those are at his core. But his glory, his glory then is his beauty that radiates from his essence. His beauty is revealed to us. It's what we get to experience and enjoy and reflect to our world around us. Now, glory, it's difficult for us to get our minds around it, okay? It's, it's difficult for me to even try to explain and talk about glory because we really have only experienced a fraction of the glory of God. So Kevin Good uh, was not here this morning. The Good family is not here this morning because Kevin Good's grandma passed away last week. And they're celebrating her life with family over the weekend and she was a believer, so it is a, it's a celebration, it's a rejoicement. But, but, but listen, Kevin's grandma knows way more about the glory of God than we do this morning. She's experiencing its fullness firsthand. And so we're, we, we ask the Holy Spirit to kind of try to help us, help us understand, help us experience more of God's glory, but we're only getting just a fraction of it. But you've got to see that we long for it. We long for glory. We long to experience more of the glory of God. We long to live and dwell and exist in the glory of God. We are glory seekers. We are glory seekers. And so listen, there's nothing wrong with craving beautiful or excellent or majestic or wonderfully good things. It's not. There's nothing wrong with that. But you see, as glory seekers, we often find ourselves chasing after reflections of God's glory or even chasing after distortions of God's glory. But you have to understand creation was created to reflect the glory of God. Much like the moon can reflect the light of the sun, creation was created to reflect the glory of God. So for example, for example, that beautiful sunset is glorious because it is a reflection of the glory of God, okay? Okay? Some more examples, that, that wonderfully prepared meal with all the right ingredients that bring out all the right flavors, that is the reflection of the glory of a God who knows how to satisfy his people's appetites. That soul-stirring song that you listen to that has just the right instruments playing at just the right time in just the right tone in the notes that makes beautiful music to your ears, that is a reflection of the glory of a God who is orchestrating his universe in the same way at just the right time in just the right way. And that captivating story that we are reading in a good book or that we're watching in a good movie that is a reflection of the glory of our God who is the greatest story writer in the history of the universe, who loves to have twists and turns and even knows how to use some irony and humor and, and, and knows when to send the hero at just the right time. And we could just, I mean, we could go on and on with this, right? The husband who selflessly lays down his life for his family day in and day out is a reflection of the glory of a God who laid down his life for his people, A mother and a wife who day in and day out serves her family is a reflection of the glory of a God who tirelessly and many times thanklessly serves his people. The CEO or the entrepreneur who runs their business with integrity and excellence is a reflection of the glory of a God who manages all things well and has never been late to any meeting and faithfully brings the sun up every morning and is working even when we are all asleep. And we could just keep going and going and going about all these reflections of God's glory that we see in his creation, but I'll leave that to you to do later this afternoon as you try to experience and enjoy more of the glory of God. But here's the bad news. Here's the bad news. Because of sin, these reflections can often become distorted reflections and remember what sin is sin is turning away from god's desires with our thoughts words excuse me with our actions attitudes or thoughts okay i love that definition of sin it's 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 fairly simple i can usually remember it but i'm i was uh, having trouble this morning but sin is turning away from god's desires with our actions attitudes or thoughts And the thing that sin always does, it always causes us then to turn in on ourselves. And so us as glory seekers, because of sin, we've now turned in on ourselves and now we start seeking our own glory, right? And it also, what sin has done, it distorts the reflection of the glory. And many times because of that, we miss out on beholding the true source of glory. And then if we keep experiencing these distortions, we keep just looking at these distortions of glory, we end up becoming captives to these distorted reflections of glory. So think think for a second about those fun house mirrors, okay? The mirror is bent or distorted in certain segments of the mirror, right? And so you stand in front of one mirror, and it's like your legs are 90% of your body, and the rest is just a little bit, right? You stand in another mirror, and it's distorted in a different way, and it looks like, man, your nose is just like, you know, the, the, your whole body. Where's the rest of your body? You stand in one mirror, it looks like you're super skinny. You stand in front of another mirror, and you've gained 200 pounds, Okay? Now, what are those fun house mirrors doing? They are reflecting something, but they're not reflecting it as they should. They're not reflecting it as they they should. And in the same way, sin has had a devastating effect on our ability to reflect and enjoy the glory of God. But listen up, all you glory seekers. Because we find our solution to our problem in our passage this morning. And so are you guys ready? All right, give me a little head nod. Give me a little head. Okay, all right, you're with me. All right, let's go. Mark 9, verse 1. Mark 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, some read verse 1, and they view it as the ending of chapter 8, and some view it as the beginning of chapter 9. Okay, so let me refresh you what chapter 8 was all about. Jesus had just talked to the crowd about what, about what true discipleship is all about. And then he says, hey, there are some of you that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, what's he, what's Jesus talking about? What's he referring to in Mark 9, verse 1? And there are some, there are some mixed views as to what he's referring to. So I'll list out what the views are, and then I'll give you what I think he's talking about, okay? Um, We first know that it can't be his second coming that he's talking about, because that obviously did not happen in those disciples' lifetime, right? Some of the uh, uh, earliest disciples, they heard that, they assumed that's, hey, that's when Jesus returns and makes all things right, you know, the kingdom is fully fulfilled and realized and all that, but we know Jesus did not come back in their lifetime, so he can't be referring to that. Some think he's referring to the day of Pentecost, because the day of Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit was poured out onto God's people, and so that was really when God's people were empowered, that the kingdom came with power. Some read verse uh, chapter 9, verse 1, and, and think of it as being the day of Pentecost that he's referring to. Some think it's referring to the destruction of the temple, which happened in A.D. 70, uh, because that is when the Christian church really finally saw its distinction from Judaism, okay? But what I think is most likely, what I think Jesus is most likely referring to, is that he's referring to the transfiguration, which we're about to read, and eventually then his resurrection, okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where they put these passages together, it's always following this, is the transfiguration, okay? Okay? So there's some differing views on that, but those are kind of, that's, that's where I fall. That's where I land. Look at Mark 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say. We've all been there, for they were terrified, right? Okay, let's stop there for a second. Our boy Peter, our boy Peter, fresh off of being rebuked by Jesus and that whole get behind me Satan moment, right, which we kind of felt for him in that moment. He, was, he, he initially was like, you know, I, he, he saw that Jesus was the Christ, right? Uh, Jesus said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. A few verses later, get behind me, Satan. He's being rebuked. But Peter, he's got some courage, okay, or or he's got something. He decides to speak again. He decides to speak again. Now, we can can cut him a little bit of slack here, okay? The New Testament had not been written yet. Uh, The book of James had not been written yet. He did not realize that he should be uh, quick to listen and slow to speak, all right? That's a a beautiful truth. Your your life would be just so much better if you were quick to listen and slow to speak. If you're looking for little nuggets to take away, that's a nugget, all right? Take that one with you and apply it this week. Uh, But listen, Peter is, is terrified by the sight that he saw, he doesn't know what to say, and so he starts, he starts talking about tents. He starts talking about tents. He says, well, first he says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here, okay? Okay. I mean, that's, that's all right. That's all right. He says, let us make three tents for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, now, our English word tent can sort of mislead us a little bit to think that Peter is maybe just really into camping, okay? Like, he's super excited. Uh, he all of a sudden sees, maybe this is like a, a guy night, like playing out, right? Elijah and Moses showed up. They're on, they're out in the wilderness. Uh, we know Peter was married because he had a mother-in-law, and you typically don't get one of those without being married. So maybe Peter's just like, hey, guy night, all right? Let's, let's make some tents. Let's camp, all right? Or maybe, maybe we read this and we think, man, man, Peter's just like socially awkward or something. Like, I mean, Moses and Elijah show up and he starts talking about tents. What's going on with that? Okay. But listen, this passage, it's actually not as crazy as we would initially read it. So we're going to, we're not going to be too hard on Peter here. Okay. Because the English word tent here is, is, is really the word for tabernacle. Tabernacle. Okay. And if you've been in church for any length of time, just switching the word tent for tabernacle makes you feel just a little bit more churchy about yourself, right? Like, I mean, that seems like maybe that's a little bit more appropriate in this in this uh, in this setting, okay? because, listen, uh, when you think about the tabernacle, remember that when the people of God were rescued from slavery in Egypt, they were wandering through the desert. God instructed them to build a tabernacle, all right? This would be a temporary place, a, a dwelling place for the Lord, a place of worship. It was a mobile hotspot of God's presence, if you will, traveling through the desert. And then later on in, 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 God's, in the history of God's people, God would instruct his people to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? The feast of booths to remember to remember his provision protection and presence in the wilderness and and to look forward to the coming kingdom when god would once again dwell with his people Okay, and so Peter, a good Jewish boy, is kind of grown up with the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. He sees Elijah and Moses. He sees Jesus in glory. And he's probably thinking, hey, it's kingdom time, right? Like, I've been preparing for this. I've been going to that Feast of Tabernacle every year. I know how to build these things. We have been waiting for the time that God would once again dwell with his people. Okay, let's set this thing up, Peter's thinking. But what Peter, what Peter has not yet seen and why this is still somewhat a foolish response is because Peter does not yet understand that God had already provided his own tabernacle. God had already provided his own dwelling place with humanity through Jesus, through Jesus. John who was an eyewitness of this as well, would later understand this when he wrote John 1, verse 14, which says, and the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt. What's that word? Tabernacled. (laughs) The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. You see, God did not need Peter to build a tabernacle he had provided his own through jesus but peter but peter being so terrified he does make a poor decision in opening his mouth okay in fact peter even before this has all along been held captive by fear Now, we probably don't have anyone that can even relate to that this morning, all right? Being held captive by fear. But Peter, I mean, listen, he's already confessed that Jesus is the Christ, right? That was Mark 8, 39. Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the anointed one, the king we've been waiting for that's going to make all things right. It was a glorious moment in the book of Mark when the father revealed to Peter that Jesus is the Christ. But then Jesus starts to explain that he's going to have to, yes, he's the Christ, but he's going to have to be a suffering Messiah. Yes, he's the king, but he's going to have to be a suffering king. That, yes, the crown is coming, but the cross has to come first. Yes, there is glory to come, but suffering is what is now at hand. And then Jesus takes it a step further in Mark 8 because he says, The cross awaits me and the cross awaits all my disciples. And Peter hears that and he's like, Whoa, that's terrifying. You see, Peter was still chasing reflections of glory. He saw Jesus as king. He declared him to be king. But he wanted Jesus to be the kind of king that he thought a king should be. He had hoped that it would be a king the way he saw kings acting and being like in the world around him he assumes that now that they're turning towards jerusalem he assumes they're headed to like take over he's uh, he's assuming he's going to get a throne or he's going to get some power or he's going to get some control or he's going to throw out the romans but then jesus starts talking about all this deny yourself and take up your cross stuff and peter is fearful and he's held fe- he's held captive by fear in this moment and he's so fearful he makes a bad decision I don't know if there's anyone in here who's ever made a bad decision because they've been held captive by fear. But Peter then continues to do this. He's going to continue to be held captive by fear. Later on, he's going to cut off a guy's ear because he's held captive by fear. Later on, he's going to deny Jesus three times because he's held captive by fear. And the reason that we love Peter so much is because we're just like Peter. We are held captive by fear. And it is out of our captivity to fear that we make so many bad decisions. And listen, church, marketers, politicians, and even pastors, anyone that's trying, and and then anyone in the marketplace who's trying to sell you something, they, they know this. They know this, okay? If I can get you to fear something, I can probably get you to buy something. That's, just, that's true. If I can get you to fear something, I can probably get you to vote a certain way. If I can get you to fear something, I can get you to be hateful, hurtful, and divisive to one another on social media. I can. And if I can get you to fear something, I can even get you to believe something that's, that's false doctrine or false teaching out of fear of believing the alternative. You see, glory seekers who are chasing reflections of glory... We end up in captivity to fear or to whatever else we've been chasing. But there is good news because there is a lasting solution to this problem. Look back at Mark 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. That word transfigured does not mean that Jesus changed his nature, okay? He didn't all of a sudden become something that he hadn't always been, okay? No, transfigured means to be transformed, to change in form. Okay it wasn't a changing of natures it was a removal of the cloak of humanity in order to reveal the glory and the beauty that radiates from his being Mark writes that his clothes became radiant intensely white and I don't care how much maybe your mom or your grandma brags about how well they can keep your white shirts white, okay? Mark says this was such an intense white. No one can bleach them this way. No one can bleach this, this way. Matthew's account adds that his face shined like the sun. Luke's account says that they saw his glory. Now, listen, church, this is important. Jesus didn't become glorious. He revealed his glory. He revealed his glory. This was a revealing that Jesus was truly God, the second person of the Trinity who had eternally existed in glory, but who had humbled himself and had taken on human form. And so listen up, Peter, James, and John. This isn't just another carpenter from Nazareth, okay? No, this is God in the flesh. His glory is being revealed to them. But the question we have to ask is, how does Peter how does Peter, who has been captive to fear, paralyzed by fear, who will make some really bad decisions because he's captive to fear, how does he eventually proclaim the gospel to thousands, and how does he eventually have the courage to ask to be crucified upside down because he didn't count it worthy to die the same way Jesus died? Like, how does he stop living like a captive to fear? And I think we get some insight into this from Peter's uh, later writing, as well as John's later writing. These, these guys that, that were firsthand eyewitnesses of this. And so Peter, in the, in the book of Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. John, who is an eyewitness as well, we already read the verse, but John 1, 14, I'll I'll, I'll remind you of it again. He said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. They saw his glory. They saw the beauty that radiates from our infinite and our perfect God. And these three glory seekers, they saw Jesus being set apart from their heroes, Moses and Elijah, who, who Luke's account tells us that Moses and Elijah, they're talking to Jesus. We know what they're talking about. They're talking about his death. They're talking about his death, okay? Jesus' death and what we're going to celebrate this Friday on Good Friday, okay? That was all according to the definite plan of God. Moses and Elijah understood that. And so here in the transfiguration, Jesus is being set apart from these Jewish heroes as if to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law represented by Moses and he is the fulfillment of the prophets represented by Elijah, And the glory shining from Jesus, it was not a reflected glory like when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he radiated from being in God's presence. No, this was not a reflected glory. Jesus was the source of glory. This was the fountain of glory. This was the cause of all glory and beauty and majesty and splendor. These three glory seekers saw the source of infinite and perfect love, justice, grace, mercy, faithfulness, wisdom, power, goodness. And they were captivated by the glory of God revealed to them through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you want to know how to not live like a captive, be captivated by the glory of God revealed to you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And today right now I'm talking to all of you guys personally, are you living like a captive or are you living like a captivated one? Are you living like a captive or are you living like a captivated one? Are you chasing reflections of glory or are you being captivated by the glory of God revealed to us, excuse me, revealed to us through Jesus? Well, maybe you say, Pastor Grant, I want to be captivated by the glory of God, but I don't know how, right? Maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you feel like you've been looking in those funhouse distorted mirrors. Maybe you feel like you're in the maze of mirrors, just chasing reflection after reflection, but never getting anywhere and getting lost in the process. Maybe you've been looking at these distorted reflections so long that you decide just to give in and just to conform to what they are telling you, right? Maybe my legs really are just that long. I don't know. Maybe that's just how legs are, right? Like you've looked in the distorted mirror of happiness for so long, and you start to think hey, maybe that's what happiness really looks like. And if that's what happiness looks like, then I need to get more money, I need to get more stuff, I need to get a new spouse. Right? That's what we do. We look in these distorted mirrors reflecting that are supposed to reflect to us God's glory, but they've been distorted because of sin. And after we look at it and dwell on it for so long, we just start to conform to it. We just start to say, well, maybe that's just how it's supposed to be, right? Or maybe you've looked into the distorted mirror of love. And so instead of enjoying the perfect love of God and pursuing the love of God, you're surrounded by this distortion of love that you see in the world, which actually isn't love at all. It's, it's really more manipulation used for selfish gain, okay? But maybe you've looked at this distorted mirror of love for so long, you just conform and just say, hey, maybe that's what, what love is. I'll give up on, on, on seeking this unconditional, perfect, selfless love. And all that looking and these reflections and distortions, all it makes us want to do is just conform. Captives conform. That's what they do. When you're held captive by something, you conform. But the question is, how do we not just settle and conform? to the distorted images we see all around us? That's a great question. You guys are asking great questions today. I love it. <laughs> Look at Mark 9, verse 7. Mark 9, verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Maybe one of the most important commands we see in the Bible, so don't miss this, okay? Okay. The father says, speaking of Jesus, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Like, don't speak, Peter. Don't speak, please. No more, Peter. Don't speak. Listen. Listen. Listen to Jesus. If you don't want to be a captive to all these distortions and reflections of God's glory, listen to Jesus. Who are you listening to right now? Who are you listening to? Listen to Jesus. Okay, this is the practical portion of our sor- sermon this morning. If you were looking for a practical sermon about God's glory, here it is, real practical. Listen to Jesus. I know that, that sounds Sunday schoolish, right? I know that sounds oversimplified. But how many heartaches would we avoid and how much joy would we have if we really were slow to speak and quick to speak? to listen to Jesus. Then watch what happens. Verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Remember, Jesus knows this was only kind of the first look at his glory, but it wasn't all going to really make sense to them until his death and resurrection, which comes Friday. We're going to celebrate and next Saturday. So I hope you join us for those times together. Friday at 630 and Sunday, then the resurrection, okay? We'll look at his glory through the death and resurrection. Verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Okay, it's not all coming together yet for them, right? They don't know Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday are coming. They've got more questions. Verse 11, and they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. You see, they're still not really on the same page as to how this is all going to go down. And they're trying to figure out this whole Elijah prophecy from the book of Malachi uh, and, and trying to understand how it's, how it's going to play out. And Jesus says, hey, the spirit of Elijah had already come in John the Baptist to prepare the way for the kingdom. And that's not me speculating. Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 17, verse 13, it adds, it adds this to this uh, story. It says, then the disciples understood he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Okay? Okay. It says, then the disciples understood he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The forerunner had come, okay? The forerunner had come. He got beheaded. And now Jesus is also going to suffer and be treated with contempt. But you see, the disciples' ideas about what a king and a kingdom should look like, they are based upon the distorted reflections that they saw in their world, and they couldn't make sense of this. They were held captive to what they thought a king and a kingdom should be. And what do captives do? They conform. They conform to the pattern and distortion of what they see in the world. But how are captivated ones different? How are captivated ones different? Because God is revealing his glory to his disciples and to us, not so that we would be conformed to these reflections and distortions of his glory, but so that something better would happen. There's something better that's supposed to happen, okay? So stick with me as as I'm kind of winding this thing down for a second, all right? I think we get some help as to what this something better is by looking at this word transfigured, okay? Because it's used a few other times in the New Testament. So I want to take you to those passages. For the sake of time, I won't have you turn there, but let's just have you look up on the screen. Romans 12. Romans 12 is one of those passages. So Romans 12, verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Same word used for transfigured. Transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. You see, we're picking up Paul's letter to the Romans a little late, but he had just written in Romans chapter 1 that these glory seekers had settled for distortions and reflections of God's glory instead of going to the source of glory. They had exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and, and birds and beasts and creeping things, right? And they ultimately had gloried and worshiped creation instead of creator, and we are all guilty of that as well. Okay, that's Romans 1. And God says, do not be conformed. Do not fall in line with those funhouse mirrors. Don't fall in love with the beauty that comes from creation without seeing that it is reflecting the beauty and the glory of the Lord. Because when we settle for the glory of creation, we conform. We conform to this world. But Paul, in his second letter, to the corinthians gives us a better alternative here's another passage that we see the word transfigured in second corinthians three eighteen. it says and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the lord are being transformed we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the lord who is the spirit And as I'm kind of winding down, Betsy and Ben, you guys can go ahead and, and come on up. But my question for you guys, you glory seekers, let me ask you. Are you a captive or are you a captivated one? In your search for beauty, majesty, splendor, and glory, are you settling for creation and neglecting our creator? Do you feel like your worship of you worship creation instead of our creator? And do you feel like now this has kind of caused a distorted view of God for you? Do you try to behold, you try to read His word, you try to hear him uh, preached about at church? you try to talk to him at City, or talk about him at Citigroup, but, but he just doesn't seem as good and glorious as you know that he should be? Do you ever feel like your life is like a chaotic maze of mirrors where you're just chasing after one reflection of glory after another and never getting anywhere? Are you tired of looking at the moon and thinking, there has to be something more glorious than this? There has to be something more powerful. There has to be a source of this reflected glory. And if that's you, if you look at your life and you see all these distortions and reflections of glory, but you've and you've got no hope, you've got no joy, and you're, you're living like a captive to fear, you're living like a captive to lust, you're living like a captive to greed, and a captive to control, and a captive to comfort, and you've been trying to get a taste of glory on Sunday, but it hasn't had any flavor because you've been captive to creation your whole week. If that's you this morning, my prayer for you is that you would pray the prayer of Moses that you would say, Lord, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. You can pray that. You can pray that today. Show me your glory. And listen, as a fellow glory seeker, I have prayed that prayer. I have yelled that prayer. I have cried and pleaded that prayer. And I believe that when you pray that prayer, I believe that Mark describes what happens when you are truly longing for the source of glory. I think it's a great description in verse 8, Mark 9, verse 8. Those that are truly seeking and longing and pursuing the source of glory, it says, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. all the mirrors, all the reflections, all the distortions gone. True glory seekers find Jesus only. God has been so good to reveal to us his glory, and the source of all glory has been revealed to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So church, if you're tired of just always conforming and you want to start transforming, listen, listen to Jesus and behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Walk with him. Cry out to him. Enjoy communion with him. Submit yourself to him and see how the beauty and the glory of all his creation points to him. Are you living as a captive to creation Or are you captivated by your creator? And what can you do today and this week to not live as a captive but instead as a captivated one? Maybe it's scheduling some more time to be in the word. Maybe it's planning a a time of some silence and solitude where you stop speaking and you just start listening. Maybe it's prayerfully giving God glory for all the ways that you see his glory reflected in his universe. Maybe it's time to not make that big decision because you realize you're making it out of captivity to fear maybe you need to fast maybe you need to be extremely generous maybe you need to set aside these distortions and reflections that, so that you can enjoy the real thing beholding the glory of the Lord it will renew and transform all the distortions and reflections and the wounds that we have experienced this side of glory and we know that those will ultimately be temporary distortions. They're temporary. For we know what first John three two says. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Let's pray.